If you will take out this insert here that's got a picture of a golden calf, that's what that is on the front of it. It says, Unfolding Grace. That's the sermon series we're in. It is good to see you. You have navigated something dangerous to get here. Because for about a month or three or four weeks maybe in the spring, Indianapolis is the most dangerous place to drive in the country. Because of the potholes. It's like everybody's doing Mario Kart with real cars all at the same time. And I drive a small car, which is low to the ground, which means you can't see them until you get up on them, and you could, you could lose the car in a pothole, right? That's good, good steering, though, so you can get around fast. It is dangerous. You always kind of avoid, like you're driving, you're just trying to avoid and avoid. You see people come at you, they're trying to avoid the potholes. Uh, that is sometimes, I'm afraid, the posture we have when we come to the text or when the text is brought to us. We see something coming, we're like, oh, I've got to avoid that. Oh, I've got to avoid that. And we see a whole, our whole family in the church, like, oh, we've got to avoid this and got to avoid that. If I can plead with you for one week, really, we, we want this never to be the case, but for this week, if we cannot be in that posture, I think it will be good for our souls. Because what is coming at us in the text is meant for our good. It is very good. And what we have is God disclosing himself. This last week, uh, the last couple days, I spent time as a uh, church plant assessor, which means um, folks who are usually earlier in ministry come and they say, trying to discern whether we should plant a church or not, because that's a, that's a very um, intensive endeavor, this whole church planting thing. Our denomination has a series of breakpoints, which we, we assess people and say, you should go on or you should not go on. And so I was part of that uh, this last weekend. And part of that is we try to get a 360 on these people from different areas of their life, different people in different areas of their life, and they fill out these forms referencing them and assessing them, and then the person themselves, or the couple themselves, fills out a self-reference. The problem with self-references, the problem with self-assessment, which you may know from experience, is self-deception. We just don't know ourselves. And you know, if you've been, like some of you like to take the test, Myers-Briggs or uh, Enneagram, right? You love it. I'm a two, I'm a four, I'm an eight, whatever. And, but the, the, uh, I don't mean to make fun of them. I do mean to make fun of them, but I'm an eight, which is, I guess that's what I'm supposed to do. I don't know. But, um, but by the second or third time you're taking it, you're like, I know what they're looking for. I'm going to answer that. I don't feel like that today. I'm going to answer this. We're, we... We are self-deceived, and so we will, we will assess a candidate, and he will say something like this and this and this, and we'll look at their references, and we say, well, that doesn't seem at all like what you are, and we have to ask more questions. Because we're dependent on realities around us, we are a bit, a bit self-deceived, and it's very hard for us to give accurate self-reference. There is one being in the universe who is completely independent from all realities around him, and that is the Lord, and when he discloses about himself, we can be sure that it is without self-deception. And that is what we see in the text today. God discloses to himself, uh, from himself, to his people about his own glory. And we see here that he does that in response both to his people's failure in the people and to their faithfulness. As Moses was very faithful in this passage and the people were very much failing and God discloses himself nonetheless. So we're, we've been walking through the Old Testament we're ready today from, for Exodus 32, 33, 34. If you remember last week, Taylor preached on God giving the Ten Commandments to the people. God took Moses away a little bit, and he gave him the Ten Commandments. And the, if you don't remember, here's how they begin. 
I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of slavery, out, out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So it begins with grace. I did something. I've already done it. Therefore, live in this way. Not live in this way, so I will do something. I've already done it. Grace before uh, the call to live in a particular way. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself a carved image or an idol of anything. Okay, those are the first two commands. I, I did this. I brought you out. I am the God who brought you out. Don't have another God and don't make an image. Okay, cool. So then what happens is the people say, basically, Moses, this is way too scary for us, this whole thunder and cloud and fire. It, God's too much for us. You go away up on this mountain and you talk to him for us. You talk in our place. You be our mediator. You be the man on the mountain for us. And so that's fine with Moses. He goes up on the mountain, and he's gone. And so then from Exodus 21 to 31, God is giving Moses all this depth instruction about the Old Testament, about what the community is supposed to be like, and the building of the tabernacle, and days turn into weeks, and weeks turn into a month. And he's been gone almost 40 days. And the people whom God has just brought through the Red Sea. They've seen plagues. We didn't talk about this, but he gave manna in the wilderness, um, this supernatural bread from heaven to sustain them in the desert. They begin to get a little nervous. And this is what happens. Exodus 32. This is in your insert. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to them, said to him, up, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Like, he's up on the mountain like they know, right? Verse 2. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears, the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool or a carving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So if you are keeping track, God says, I brought you out of the land of Egypt, have no other God before you, and don't make an image. A few days later, they make an image, say we have another God, and these are the gods that brought us out of the land of Egypt. So lest you think the Bible is filled with heroes not named Jesus, this is an example that the people are terrible, right? The people of Israel are not meant to be heroic in any way. And almost no, I mean, there are a few heroes in the Bible, I guess, but we don't know who they are other than Jesus. Uh, They do exactly the opposite of the first two commandments and the prologue to the Ten Commandments. And they make this golden calf, probably because that was one of the gods of Egypt. The Apis bull was the, the sort of the, the graphic image of the god of both strength, and they wanted security, and, uh, cleaning this up, strength and sexual potency because they wanted a progeny. They wanted generations. Unfortunately, that does mean, too, that part of the worship of this golden calf would have been licentious in some way. Uh, and they used the gold. If you remember, the, they had gold because God blessed them by the, making the Egyptians give them gold so they would have something to barter with in their upcoming journeys. It was a blessing God gave them, and they turn around and make an idol out of it. And you might ask, well, how does this happen? I mean, God just 
gave plagues to Pharaoh. He just brought him through the Red Sea. He just gave this miracle bread in the wilderness. How does this happen? Look, you know this, right? It is easy to forget the powerful working of God in our life. Right? Some of us, we come and we come to the Lord and we have this profound sense of forgiveness and wholeness and completeness and freedom, and it's beautiful, and we're like, we'll never turn from you, and then we go to sleep, and we wake up, and we totally forget it. And then our life is mired down in ways we just never intended and couldn't believe, because it's easy to forget the powerful working of God in our life. And this is just on a macro scale of what we experience often. But if you catch what's happening here, Moses, representing the people, is up on the mountain, and God is making a covenant with them, a covenant promise, at the very same time that the people are down breaking the covenant. So, again, not to make this too graphic, an appropriate illustration of this would be to have a marriage ceremony going on, and in the middle of it, one of the spouses say, time out, and go get with an X. That, it's, it's a graphic, it's like, would, who would ever do that? Well, people of Israel are doing that right here. And then what happens after this, it's not in here, and we're not going to address it too much, but God says to Moses, how about we just start over with you and you alone? Let me get rid of these people, because they're, they're terrible. <laughs> and, Mo, and this is God drawing Moses into relationship. And there's this beautiful uh, interchange with Moses and God where Moses actually argues with God. And it says God changes his mind. Why? From a human perspective, a human experiential standpoint, God does change his mind. Now from God's omnipotent, sovereign plan, no. But from, to our real experience, God would change his mind. Moses argues with God, gives him reason, God changes his mind. It's actually a good pattern of prayer for us. We can't go into it. Uh, and then, so God relents and says, fine, I won't destroy the people. Calling Moses into relationship. Then Moses walks down the mountain and sees what they're actually doing. And he's carried the Ten Commandments, the tablets down, and you've probably seen this in a movie. He smashes them on the ground to, to signify that they've actually broken the covenant already. He's like, we didn't even get to the wedding reception yet, and you've broken the covenant. And then what follows is a conversation between Moses and his brother Aaron, who was second in command, who was in command when he left, which is undoubtedly the very worst excuse in the history of the Bible. Verse 21. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you brought such a great sin upon them? Aaron, you were the leader. And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any of you who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. <laughs> yeah, Aaron, because you engraved it with a carving tool. So, okay, it's a technical truth. A calf did come out of the fire because you made it. I mean, this is like, I don't know, I'm getting a little far from this period in our life. This is maybe seven-year-old defense territory here, 
Like, this is like, I don't know how, you know, I don't know what happened to the cookies. This is right here, you know. It's like, uh, I don't know. It just disappeared. They just disappeared. Out came this calf. Who knew? Then Exodus 33 is about, God comes to to Moses and says, how about this? I'm not going to go with you. I'll go before you. And then you guys follow after. And the people were dismayed because they came to their senses. And they said, we actually want the Lord to be with us, his presence with us. And so this more of God calling Moses into relationship. And Moses, not arguing with God, but having a conversation with him in in Exodus 33, saying, no, if, if you don't go with us, don't send us up. We really want your presence. But in the, back, in the back of Moses' mind, he knows there's a problem. These people are going to keep doing this sort of thing. How can God's presence go with this and they keep doing this sort of thing and everybody live? Right? Because God's this consuming fire. We've seen this already. And they're so blatantly rebellious. And God relents and says, I will go with you. I will, my presence will go with you. And I will continue in my covenant. And Moses is uncertain how this is going to happen and wants sort of a pledge. It's like, please show me your glory, like this pledge of your character so I can rest assured that you will go with us and we will be okay. That's where this picks up, Exodus 33. Moses said, please show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Right? Nobody's going to stop me from showing mercy. But he said, you, Moses, cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, in a small cave, and it will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So God is saying, responding, yes, I will show you my glory. Now, not full on or you won't live. I'll show you the, the shadow side, the back side, if you will, of my glory. And then Exodus 34 is about God doing that very thing. God revealing his glory to Moses. And in the Old Testament, glory has to do with weight, brilliance, sort of the essence of God's person. Glory is like weightiness. It's the word kavod. It just means the, the good weight of God. Verse 1 of Exodus 34. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourselves there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come with you and let no one be seen throughout the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. So what's happening here? God's reestablishing the covenant. He's going to carve the the tablets again, saying, yes, I I, I made this covenant. Yes, you immediately broke it, but it's not done. I'm going to sustain my faithfulness to my people. But Moses, you come up alone. And that's going to become important here in a couple minutes. But just notice God specifically said to Moses, you alone. I don't, we don't even want to see another person or another animal on the mountain. You alone. 
solitude. Verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and, so stop, pause just for a second. God is completely free to do whatever he wants to do. I'm going to show you my glory, Moses. This is God freely deciding which, how to reveal his glory, his essence, his weight, his brilliance to Moses. We might expect him to give him a replay of the, pl- the, seven, the, seven, the ten plagues or the seven days of creation or the Red Sea. Remember how I breathed on the Red Sea and parted it? Maybe he'll show him the internal workings of physics and how he holds atoms together even though we're not quite sure how it works. This kind of power. And early in college and just before college, I was part of a movement that was deeply concerned about, like, we really want to see the glory of God, experience the glory of God. And for that movement, it meant, like, power and experience. And that for, for that particular movement, glory was equated with some sort of experience of overwhelming awe. I'm okay with all of that. But I just want us to see when God, who's completely free, to communicate whatever he wants to communicate about his glory, this is what he communicates to his people. Verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, and here it is. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So we're going to start with verse 7 and then the the second part of that and then come back up. But what I want us to see first is that when God is completely free to communicate anything he wants about the essence of his brilliance, what he reveals is his character. His character, not first his power. So let's look at this one. There's one phrase in 2022 that will really get our attention here first. Visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Actually, the word generation is not in there. It just says third and fourth, but translators supply generation because that's what it meant. Does that mean God is visiting the judgment of the sin of one generation on the, on the next? As if the one generation is guilty for the sin of the former generation. That seems to be what this is saying. This is there. Sometimes you, uh, in some circles, they talk about generational curses uh, as a biblical teaching. It's not a biblical teaching. It's made up. Now it does come from this, but here's where this comes from. God's already said this back in the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verse five and six. I put it in your insert in that pullout box. Verse five. You should not bow down to them, these idols, or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So he's just, refer- he's just, it's just a callback to what he's already said. And this, which is, by the way, this self-revelation of God is the most quoted passage in the Old Testament. 
and you, it makes it clear that this is what he's talking about. One generation does bear the guilt of the former generation if they continue to sin in the same way of unbelief. So if one generation, so if, if I'm a father and I reject the Lord, that, that's, that, that hate me is a Old Testament language for refuses to believe. Refuse to believe, and I have a children who also refuse to believe, they receive the same type of judgment as I do because they engage in the same type of unbelief. So, you know, if, if there is unbelief in these generations, it is like that iniquity accrues, and we see this in the world, how gener- like generations can get worse and worse and worse if there's serious unbelief that stays in there. What happens if one generation repents and turns to the Lord? Renewal and restoration. And that's really good news for some of us here who did not come from Christian and believing families, right? who can say with Peter that we've been redeemed from the futile ways of our ancestors. That's good news. That's good news for me. It's good news for some of you. And so all this, yeah, so this, this is just saying, like, it's not like saying one generation is guilty for the sin of another generation. It's just an unbiblical teaching. So... I kind of wish the Lord had just added a, of those who hate me in here, but he already wrote it in stone with his finger for his people, right? So, um, okay. But, and if we step back a little bit farther and look at this whole thing from the perspective we have to look at it from, which is on this side of the cross of Jesus, we see something else too. Where it says, verse 7, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children. So that forgiving iniquity or visiting iniquity, that word forgiving just means carrying it. Either forgiving is God carrying iniquity or carrying judgment or allowing the people to carry it. That's visiting it on them. And so what is the cross of Jesus but Jesus carrying the iniquity for his people. That's, and so that's why in Isaiah 53, which we often read at Good Friday, this is a prophecy of the Messiah, says this. He, the Messiah, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, of his people. Here's what this means. Guys, if you're in Christ by faith, there is no iniquity to be carried by you because Jesus has carried it. There's nothing left. There's nothing left of judgment for our rebellion, because Jesus has stood in our place and taken it. The only thing left is the rest of the passage. Jesus has dealt with that iniquity bearing. Sometimes we don't feel like that. We have to tell our hearts the truth when we don't feel like that. We're coming to the communion table in just a few minutes. This is a taking to ourselves of this symbolic reality that Jesus has borne the iniquity of our own sin. And we're free. And we might notice here that there's a literary device going on. Verse 7, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Kind of meaning thousands of generations, but it doesn't say generations. As I said, it doesn't say generations down below either, but they put it in there. But contrasting the steadfast love for thousands with the iniquity of three or four. Saying like, yes, judgment is real. But what we should think overwhelmingly is the steadfast love of God. 
Judgment is real. It does come. But that's a, um, that's a secondary reality. We'll talk about that in a second. It's not a, a common property to God. I should have said that. It, that's a philosophical term. I'll come back to that in a second. Um, here's what God says in verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. So this is God talking about himself. Not a theologian talking about God, not a pastor talking about God, not a creed or confession talking about God. It's him speaking for himself, the only non-self-deceived person ever. The Lord, the Lord, that is, I am, I am, back to Exodus 3. He said, my name is I am. Here he's going to unpack it. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, first, first thing he says, merciful. Some of your translations may say compassionate, which is a pretty good translation because it's related, believe it or not, to the Hebrew word for womb. Womb. A mother's womb. Signifying that the love of God for his people is like a mother-like, passionate, compassionate love for her son or daughter that is self-giving, that is tender, that is compassionate. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 23, I've longed like a mother hen to gather you under my wings. That's why Isaiah 49, just before what I just read, God asked this rhetorical question. Can a woman forget her nursing child? that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? And you would say, no, of course not. Of course you wouldn't forget your nursing child. And he says, well, even if these forget, I will not forget you. The, so here's how we have to think about this. The, the, a mother's compassionate love for her children is because it's a reflection of the actual love of God for his people. We can understand a mother's compassion love only first because God has compassion for his people. Compassion. Merciful. So I think that means, I guess it's first a question, do you see him as a compassionate God? That that's his nature. Guys, this is the first thing he says. The Lord, the Lord, not powerful, though he's powerful. Not omniscient, though he does know everything. Not, I'm a God of justice, though he is. The Lord, the Lord, and here's the first thing I want you, my people, to know. I am compassionate toward you. I'm compassionate. That is a challenge for me. I, I love to think about a lot of things about the Lord, but I'm not sure that his compassion comes first in my mind. But when he gets to talk about himself and somebody else isn't talking about him, he says, I'm compassionate. And we might ask ourselves, do we bring him in? Do we consciously access that compassion? And it might look like something about, like, in prayer, we're really dealing with God, personally wrestling with God and coming before him and saying, Lord, here is this in my life. It's an area of weakness or sorrow or pain or injury or deep emotional scarring, whatever it is. Lord, this is real, but I don't understand it. 
Help me to see. Help me to understand. My faith is weak here. Help me to trust. I need your help. I need your help to respond in line with the gospel, to keep seeing you in this. I'm weakened. Would you make me strong? I need your compassion. To bring, I mean, really to not to get too psychological about this, but there's profound help in our life where we, when we intentionally and actively bring, consciously bring God into our pain. Why would we do that? The very first thing he says to you and to me when he reveals his heart and the essence of his glory and brilliance is, I am a God of compassion, of mother-like tender love for my people. I have compassion on you. And we know like an index of that in our life is like, how do we treat others with compassion? Because if we see, boy, we're, we are treated with merciful compassion, it's hard, I think, to turn and be harsh with others. And when we are being harsh with others, maybe we, wanna, we might want to ask, where am I missing the compassion of God to me right now? The first thing is compassion. Oh, and then Jesus comes on the scene, and we did it. We talked about this in our confession. He takes on real human form. He becomes really human. Therefore, we see in Hebrews 4, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in every way just as we are. He's, he really is human. He knows what it is to be sick and tired. He knows what it is to be betrayed and humiliated before people. He knows what it is to be tempted to sin. He knows what it is to be uh, tempted to despair. He knows what it is to do all of that. Therefore, he can help us, and it says, therefore we come to the throne of grace for compassion and mercy to help in our time of need. Hebrews 4. First thing, he's merciful. And then, gracious. Gracious in the Old Testament means um, he gives what is undeserved with delight. He, he delights to give what is undeserved. He gives what is undeserved upon request. That's his nature. So what do we need? What do we need if, it's, if we have not come to the Lord? Nothing. Open hands. What do we need if we have sinned or we have wandered far? Even perhaps some here, like just you're in the desert and you know. What do you need? Open hands. He is a gracious God. He gives undeserved favor with delight. So I want you to know that about me. Now, if you say, like, I don't, I don't deserve any of this. I got nothing to bring. You're qualified. Now, if we do think we kind of deserve something or God sort of owes us something, we're kind of harboring a grudge because we think we, he owes us this and we're not giving it. Well, we're getting it. We have something in our hands that we got to get rid of first, don't we? And then have open hands and experience a gracious God who gives undeserved favor with delight upon request. I'm a gracious God. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, which is kind of a fun little picture, word picture in Hebrew. It means long of nose. Long of nose. Why is that? Well, in the Old Testament conception of anger, ancient Near East conception, is a very visceral, physiological. Now, some of us know this physiological experience where, like, you get, your face gets hot, your nose gets hot, right? And you, nights like that, it's like, mm. 
What this is saying is the Lord is long, takes a long time for his nose to do that. It actually says long of two nostrils because that's how they talk about it. It's really weird. But um, he's long. It's not that it's, he's not absent of anger. He's just slow to it. Now, that's good news, right? That's why we're still worshiping. The, 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 re, the restoration of all things hasn't come yet. Final judgment hasn't come yet. Why? God's slow to anger. He's slow to anger. In the Scripture, sometimes he does bring that future judgment forward in time as a warning for people. It doesn't happen very often. Now, you might say, but it happens all the time through the Scripture. Okay, look, the Scripture covers 14 generations, 14 centuries, right? And the, it doesn't happen in history very often, God, but it does, God does record it when it happens. And so we kind of read back through the Bible like, well, it just happens all the time. Yeah, over 1,400 years. So some of you have, heard, have you ever heard of Haley's Comet? Edmund Haley identified this comet in the 17th century. It was known for centuries and centuries. Millennia before that, Babylonian astrologers had written about it. And you can go on Wikipedia. You can find everything you need to know about Halley's Comet, all its history, everything, and dense mass, speed, all the kind of stuff. And you think, well, Halley's Comet, we just got to wait till night and go out and see it because it's always there. Halley's Comet comes by every 76 years. So it came by in uh, 1986. So if you didn't see it, cool. All you have to do is wait till 2062. And some of you will be able to see that in 2062, but many of you won't. And if you missed it then, it's 2138. You all are in trouble. It doesn't happen very often, but we, we're so used to it. You know about it. You read it about it in school, perhaps. You can see it on Wikipedia. Like, it's just always, you know, present. It's rarely present. But you can compress all of history and read about it as if it's always around. It's not. The, the, the expressed anger of God in judgment does happen in history, but it gets compressed in Scripture. And we look back like, oh, God's like this. He's just always, no, that's not true. It doesn't happen very often in history. Most of it is waiting till the end of history. Why? Because God is long of nose. He's slow to anger, but he's, it's not absent anger. God, and here's what I mean, anger is not a common property of God. It's not a natural property of God. God is not, it's not part of God's person to be angry. Anger against destruction is a byproduct of the fact that he loves his creation. God wasn't angry at sin before there was sin. He wasn't angry. But anger at sin, judgment against sin, is removing that which is destructive from creation. So because he loves creation, he has to be angry at sin. If he wasn't angry at sin, he wouldn't wouldn't be loving. Just like if if a judge said, yeah, I know you're guilty, and I know you did all these terrible things, everybody, but, ah, who cares? You would say, that's not right. That's not a just judge. Exactly. Anger is a property that's resulting in God's love for creation. And he is, because he is just, he will bring judgment against that which destroys it, which is sin. Okay. So some of you think, I, I, I know we wrestle with the fact that, oh, we see the judgment of God in the Old Testament. He's just kind of this explosive parent. Uh, you, know, just, you don't know how he's going to respond Please resist the temptation to read the flawless God through the lens of your flawed parents, or flawed parenting, as it may be. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's so good. Steadfast love is the Hebrew term for covenant love, hesed. That spousal-like, life-laying-down defending, providing, protecting, self-giving love for his people. 
And uh, faithfulness there is, uh, is, means God is faithful to his covenant. He's full of integrity. There's no, there's no squishy parts in him that sometimes he's this way, sometimes he's not. He's always faithful to his covenant to love his people. But I want to just point our attention to that word abounding there. Oftentimes I'll make the coffee in our house. And what I like to make it the night before so we wake up to, and set the timer so we wake up to coffee that's ready for us. One, because it's a great smell first thing in the morning. Two, because if you don't do it, you have to wait a super long time in the morning and you can't even, I can't even think to measure the coffee right. So on Friday night of this week, I did everything. I dumped out the old grounds, put in new grounds, filled the tank up with water, set the timer. What I did not do, I almost always do it, but I, I just forgot this time. I forgot to see if there was any coffee left in the pot from the day before. Turns out there were probably two or three cups left in the day, from the day before because when I woke up in the morning, there were two or three cups of coffee on the counter, right? Because the new coffee come in and there was already coffee in the, the whole carafe and so it got to the top and it kept on going. So that meant the very last drip of coffee from the new coffee came in and that same amount of wa- uh, coffee came out, which is fine, not a big deal. We have a granite countertop. We just cleaned it up. I just cleaned it up. But I also knew it meant this, that coffee pot was completely full of coffee. Like if you put another drop of coffee in it, another drop would come out, which meant I couldn't even touch it without spilling it. So I was like, you know what, that's fine. I want coffee. I'm willing to spill the coffee. And I did. I spilled it, and I just wiped it up and poured some coffee. It was, if you will, abounding in coffee. You couldn't touch it without it spilling out. When God gets to speak for himself to his people about what he is like, he says, I want you to know this. You, my people, cannot touch me without steadfast love and faithfulness spilling out on you. This is what I want you to know. This is an invitation. This is why I said don't avoid it like a pothole. This is an invitation for us to take that head on. This is the nature of our God for us. Now, you might still sense a tension in this passage. He's slow to anger, but it's not absent. He by no means clears the guilty, and yet he's abounding in steadfast love. I don't think the folks in the Old Testament, even Moses, knew how that all came together. They had the sacrificial system. That kind of made sense. It was pointing to something in the future where somehow God himself would bear the iniquity of his people. And that is exactly what we have in Jesus. The one who at the cross bears the iniquity of his people so that all that is left is steadfast love and faithfulness of God to us. You know, when the Old Testament's written in Hebrew, the New Testament's written in Greek, That Hebrew phrase for steadfast love, chesed, covenant love, the best translation of that when it comes to the New Testament is probably the word grace. That word for faithfulness in Hebrew, emet, uh, is truthfulness to the covenant. It, the, the best translation of that when you come to the New Testament is truth. So what we have here is God saying, I am a God full of grace and truth. And Moses alone saw that. But John 1, we've already read it. 
and the Word, Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, upon grace, upon grace. Moses alone had this revelation. The work of the Holy Spirit and the life of the people of God, according to 2 Corinthians 4, is to open our eyes and give us the light and the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you see Jesus as glorious, that is the the manifestation of all this Exodus 34, 6, and 7 in your life. And what's the invitation? Look. Keep looking. Keep looking. This is, I know we want, sometimes we want experiences of power and all that kind of stuff. But when God gets to talk about what his glory is, he says, I want you to see my abounding compassion for you and the way I've borne your iniquity. That's the thing Peter says into which angels long to look. They're stunned by it. They can't believe it. We can get used to it. What happens if we get used to it? Abounding, steadfast love and compassion toward his people. He says, come, see it again. Come, experience that again. That's the only thing I have left for you. That's why we go to the communion table every week. This is the living uh, this is the, the taste, we can taste it, we can see it, we can smell it, reality that Jesus has borne our iniquity and all that's left for us is gracious compassion, steadfast love, and faithfulness of him toward us. If you're in Christ, this is for you. We say taking communion at New City is a declaration that we receive and rest on Jesus alone as he has offered the gospel and we want to bring our lives under his lordship his sovereign lordship and control. That is you. This is for you. As we often say, this is not for perfect people, but for honest people. If you long for Jesus, come to the table. I'm gonna, after I pray, I'll invite you to go get the elements. We'll go from the outside, grab a piece of bread, and either white grape juice or red wine, bring it back to your seats, and we'll all partake together. Jesus, you are glorious. What you have for us is steadfast love and faithfulness. I will confess that it's hard for me sometimes to lay hold of that compassionate reality. It's easy to forget it, but impossible for you to forget us. Praise be to you. In your name we pray.